Well, God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. And take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 1. I was recently telling my wife that of all the sermons that I've ever done in my life, what we're going to look at today is actually the most important. 1 John is a book of fellowship, instructing men how fellowship with God and Jesus Christ can be found. As such, its initial verses focus on the Son of God and the eternal life of God that He manifested to men, teaching us that the only way men can gain eternal life and enter into both present and eternal fellowship with God will come through His Son. Through faith and then obedience to the Son of God will true fellowship with God be gained. Ellicott's commentary sets forth the purpose and design of this great epistle. Ellicott, the object and purpose of the apostolic preaching. The setting forth of the historical Christ for the spread of human fellowship with the Father and the Son. The design of the epistle. Fullness of joy for those who should read it. For men to have fellowship with God... Jesus, God's Son, must be revealed, believed in, relied on, and obeyed. The Father and the Son being one, so that none can rightfully claim fellowship with the Father who have a neglect of the Son and His ministry to men. The true gospel of God having at its center fellowship with the Son of God. Thus the apostle opens his writing with a focus on He whom God has sent to reveal God's own eternal life to men. 1 John 1.1 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and this is in reference to Jesus Christ, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. The apostle had been with Jesus, he had intently heard and pondered his words, seen the Lord Jesus with his eyes, been awed by and admired his person, and touched the Lord in the flesh. Thus the eternal life that was brought to man was confirmed by each of the five senses of the apostle. Therefore, whom the apostle spoke of, he had direct relationship, communication, and fellowship with. John thus desires that his readers know that he, whom he preached, was one whom he had felt, touched, and heard his message in the flesh. Jesus is emphasized because he is the only way whereby fellowship with the Father is gained. 1 John chapter 1, verse 2 now. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Ellicott on verse 1-1. Uh, For life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. The parentheses reiterates with redoubled focus, that the whole essence of the relation of God to man, now listen to this, lies in the audible, visible, tangible, 
historical appearance of God in Jesus, end quote. To these truths, the Gospel of John points that God is alone found through and by way of exposure to the Son of God. Ellicott again. The whole essence of the relation of God to man lies in the audible, visible, tangible, historical appearance of God in Jesus. Thus, for any man to truly know God, God's Son must be received, and then He, Jesus, must reveal the Father. Otherwise, it will remain impossible for God to truly be known, as no man has any ability within himself to either know God or to know God's will for his life. The Son of God, therefore, will be necessary for either of these two things to be made known to the believer. John 1.18, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. It is Jesus who has declared God and made known the eternal life found in Him. No other has this full knowledge of God and therefore can know nothing of the Father unless the Son reveals Him. It is also highly arrogant for men to think that they can know the Father absent He who was sent to reveal Him, as if God could be understood properly without the assistance of the very one whom He has purposed to reveal Himself through. Benson on this verse. He hath declared Him, hath revealed Him in a much clearer and fuller manner than he was made known before, and that by such discoveries of his nature, attributes and will, as have the most powerful tendency to render us holy and happy. The following particulars are evidently implied in this passage. First, that as the nature of God is spiritual, he is invisible to our bodily eyes. He is a being whose essence no man has seen or can see, 1 Timothy 1.17 and 1 Timothy 6.16. Though Moses and others frequently heard his voice and saw the bright cloud and external glory, that was a symbol of his presence. Secondly, that the revelation which God made of himself under the Old Testament dispensation was very inferior to that which has been made known by Christ and what was seen and known of him before Christ's incarnation was little, in comparison with what may now be seen and known. Life and immortality being now brought to light in a far higher degree than they were then. And thirdly, that neither Moses nor any of the Old Testament prophets were so well qualified to make God and His will known to mankind as our Lord Jesus Christ was. They never saw nor perfectly knew the divine being and his eternal counsels, and therefore could not make a full discovery thereof to men. The only person who ever enjoyed this privilege was the only begotten Son of God, the Word, which was in the beginning with him, or, as it is here expressed, was and is in the bosom of the Father, that is, always was and is the object of his tenderest, yea, of his infinite affection, complacency, and delight, and the intimate partner of his counsels. And this circumstance recommends Christ's holy religion to us 
unspeakably before any others, that it was founded by one that had seen God, or that had clear and perfect knowledge of him, and of his mind and will, which no other person ever had or could have. End quote. It is thus Jesus who was sent to make known God to men, so that only through him can an accurate and reliable knowledge of God be learned. Since God is spirit, he needed a physical representation of himself so that men could more fully come to believe upon him. This is seen in his sending his divine son to the earth. 1 Timothy 1.17 Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God's representation of himself is found in he who came in the flesh from the bosom of the Father. The Apostle John thus sets forth his own intimate contact with the divine being Jesus Christ, who is sent to reveal God to man. The Apostle conveying what Jesus Christ instructed him in, in regards to what is necessary for any true and genuine fellowship with God. Verse 3 now. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. As with any true servant of Christ, John relates only that which he had seen and heard from Christ. John had seen, heard, and touched Christ, and now he is about to reveal what he had seen and heard from Christ concerning fellowship with God. No man also should speculate or bring conjecture about either God or his salvation without God's word, God's spirit, and God's son confirming it to him. Because it is only when men remain strict to what Christ has taught them that there is any chance for fellowship with God to be had. The ultimate purpose also of the word is so that God can be made known. Hence, there needs to be great internal discipline to stay within the confines of what God has taught us through his Christ, so that human thought does not enter nor contaminate heavenly revelation. These truths, if adhered to, will bring men into fellowship, not only with other followers of Jesus Christ, but most importantly, produce fellowship with both the Father and the Son. Verse 4 now. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Here we learn what all true fellowship with God and His Son will yield, which is a deep spiritual joy in the soul. So that though the sinner's life is miserable, empty, and without any internal happiness, this is not true for those to whom Christ makes God known. Consequently, when men come in true contact with the Father and the Son, they will experience a spiritual joy unavailable and impossible to be felt by carnal and earthly men. This is the joy of Christ, and it will be given to all who lose their lives to Christ. Any true knowledge of God, then, as it produces fellowship with God's Son, will produce joy in the heart. It would be by Jesus' words about himself, God, and God's love, that would allow Christ's joy to remain with his followers. The words of Christ and the truth of God's love 
that which will produce fullness of joy in the hearts of those who would later in their life come to desperately need it. John 15, 11. These things have I spoken unto you, these are Christ's words again, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Ellicott on this verse. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you. The better reading is, that my joy may be in you. The joy thought of is that which Christ himself possessed in the consciousness of his love towards the Father and of the Father's love towards him. The brightness of that joy lit up the darkest hours of his own human life, and he wills that it should light up theirs. In the consciousness of their love to God and of God's love to them, there would be in them, as part of their true life, joy, which no sorrow could ever overcome. They were as men with troubled hearts. He has told them of his true source of peace. His own peace he has given to them. He tells them now of the source of joy and has spoken the word that they might possess the very joy which was the light of his own heart. And that your joy might be full. The words of the intercessory prayer in John 17, 13. And the same phrase in John 3, 29, John 16, 24, 1 John 1, 4, 2 John 1, 12. The state of which he has spoken to them, the loving and being loved of God, is the ideal perfection of human life. It supplies satisfaction for all the deepest desires of our being. The capacities of the whole man are fulfilled in it, and the result is fullness of joy. They have learnt little of the true spirit of Christianity, whose religion does not impart to them a joy which sheds its light over the whole of their lives, end quote. True Christians will possess in their hearts what those of the world cannot, joy in their souls. An overflowing, abundant joy, indescribable by human words. For the moment a man enters into God's presence... Christ's joy will be felt by him. 1 Peter 1.8 Whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Such is this joy of God that it is unspeakable and therefore unable to be audibly defined by words alone. The joy of Christ ultimately producing unspeakable encouragement to the soul. Christ's joy will escort a man or woman into the wonder of God, whereby through experiencing the joy of God, the world above is made known. Every true Christian will thus come to know an aspect of God, his joy, that those who merely use Christ's name will remain alienated from. Christ's joy is therefore reserved for those who have true fellowship with God through connection to himself. Now verse 5 of 1 John. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What we have before us is the very first principle necessary to understand the nature of God which also Jesus, the Son of God, taught the Apostle John. It is that God is light, and in Him 
is no darkness at all. This is a fundamental truth, critical to be believed for all who desire to have fellowship with the Lord. Men are dark, God is not. Men sin, God cannot. The Lord's nature, therefore, is one of only light. And as such, any living in darkness will prohibit either relationship or fellowship with Him. Sadly, though, many have been misled or misled themselves to believe that connection to darkness will not cause God to break fellowship with us or them. No doubt, this is an indefensible position, which when examined by Scripture and Christian experience will prove itself utterly false, as God's nature will neither embrace nor endorse darkness in any measure. Consequently, even in God's children, if they walk in darkness, then fellowship with God will be broken. So also, if men sin by living in darkness, fellowship with God cannot be restored until first confession of sin is made. Hence, when some imply that they can walk in darkness and maintain fellowship with He who is only light, they are liars. There is no room in God's holy character, nor place for any who walk in darkness to remain connected to Him. Darkness in any manner, whether it is known or not, prohibiting connection to the light and the experiencing the joyful presence of God. See, sin does not have to be obvious to the sinner in order to affect Christian fellowship. Rather, it only has to be committed. The effect of sin always the same, whether it is committed through ignorance or knowledge. It is naive, therefore, to presume that we must know that we sin before God in order for God to break fellowship with us. Because also God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, darkness will never be accepted by Him. This is a message that bears repeating because far too many erroneously believe that contact with darkness will not affect fellowship with God. They are wrong. As any who walk in darkness will break and forfeit any true fellowship with God. So great is God's light and the light God dwells in that the scripture states that no man nor even any other creature can approach him. The brilliance of God's light thus greater than his created beings to endure. 1 Timothy 6.16 Who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Ellicott on this verse. Dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. This should be rendered dwelling in light unapproachable. The eternal is here pictured as dwelling in an atmosphere of light too glorious for any created beings, not only men, to approach. See Psalms 104.2, where the eternal is addressed as covering himself with light as with a garment. See to Daniel 2.22, where light is spoken of as dwelling with God. The symbolism of the Old Covenant teaches the same truth, 
the unapproachable glories in which God dwells. For instance, the guarding of the bounds of Sinai in the giving of the law, the covering of the faces of the seraphim in the year King Uzziah died, when Isaiah saw the divine vision, the veiled darkness of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the temple, wherever and anon the visible glory dwelt, who no man hath seen nor can see. The Old Testament teaches the same mysterious truth, for there shall no man see me and live, Exodus 32.20, and also Deuteronomy 4.12. John 1.18 repeats this in very plain words. No man has seen God at any time. The Greek word here includes all created beings. The English translation, no man, utterly fails to reproduce the meaning of the original, end quote. How uninformed are then those who presume that they shall die and float up to heaven and meet God, even though they had no affection for the light in this life and walked in darkness the whole course of it. Nor could they ever, without first Christ's transformation of them, come into contact with the Holy Father. Men's imagination of what it will take to meet God, replacing what is very clear divine revelation. A natural man, generally assuming that he can very easily step into God's presence without harm to himself, simply because he already thinks himself like and equal to God. Yet God's word paints a very different picture of God's true celestial glory, teaching us that the light that God is and that light which surrounds him, no man can approach, nor can see, nor has seen. It is because God is such marvelous light and is too brilliant to be gazed upon that the word Jesus Christ was made flesh. For though men cannot come into the presence of the Father because of the radiance, brilliance, and illumination that surrounds him, his image is reflected in his Son. Thus, for any to come to know the Father, it must take the Son of God to reveal him. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, again Christ speaking. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. It is also at the discretion of the Son and his prerogative, whether or not the Father is made known to a man. For no man can know God unless Jesus reveals God to him. Thus, without Christ revealing the Father to men, it will remain utterly impossible and spiritually unavailable for any mortal man to come to know God. What also is beyond the truth of Christ needing to reveal God is the truth that no one knows the Son but God. Hence, for those who struggle to know Christ, the reason is given here. Benson on this verse. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father. No one knoweth the mystery of his person, his character and dignity. No one knoweth what he has done and what he is yet to do for the salvation of the world. Save the Father that sent him. These words evidently declare that there is something inexplicably mysterious in the nature and person of Christ, which indeed appears in the most convincing manner from the account elsewhere given of his deity in Scripture. 
Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. Neither can anyone savingly know God the Father but the Son, by whom alone he is fully comprehended in his nature and attributes, his counsels and dispensation, his works and ways, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him, or make him savingly known by the gospel and the illumination of the Spirit. John speaking, that the Son of God hath given us an understanding to know the true one, and we are in the true one, or through his Son, Jesus Christ, to worship therefore of the Jews who reject Christ, and consequently do not receive the knowledge of the living and true God through him, of modern deists, and of all unbelievers, is in fact rendered to an imaginary deity, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, being to them an unknown God, end quote. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. It is Christ who gives us an understanding of God. Without him, we can have none. 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Here we have the most common sin and promulgated lie in the world today. It is the falsehood of men claiming fellowship with God even while there is observable darkness in themselves. Observe also, for men to think themselves righteous they must view themselves as having some connection to the Father, whether it is true or not. Thus, connection with God will be inferred by sinful men just saying they have fellowship with God. Hence, to keep themselves thinking themselves righteous, sinners will manifest a verbal profession of God to satisfy their own consciences. The sinner proclaiming that he has fellowship with God even while everything in his walk proves otherwise. To these individuals, the message of Christ is clear. They lie and do not the truth. This is also why men of God will be so hated by those who claim fellowship with God yet walk in darkness, simply because the sinners and hypocrites lie will be exposed. Men of God exposing the lies of they who know not God. Nothing angering the hypocrite more than when his purported fellowship with God is uncovered as religious fraud. Yet it is not what a man says or alludes to himself being, which indicates fellowship with the Father. Rather, it is how he lives, a man's walk, the only true measure of his character, and not simply the words that proceed from his mouth. The main characteristic of a hypocrite also is his honoring of God with his lips, even while his heart and inward soul is far away from God. Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Christ speaking. He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Every man thus should, to properly evaluate himself, look at his actions and not his words to get a proper image of his true relationship with the Lord. 
For though words can deceive, especially to those who speak them, actions cannot. Claiming to know the Lord, while actions intimate otherwise, leading men only to greater deception. Titus 1.16 They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. There is therefore no better way for the hypocrite to outwardly appear righteous than by his professing fellowship with God. The tongue also, the most common member used in an attempt to hide iniquity in the heart. So far will men go in this charade that it ultimately becomes their religion. Barnes on 1 John 1, 6. How many whose minds are dark on the whole subject of religion, who have never known anything of the real peace and joy which it imparts, who nevertheless entertain the belief that they are the friends of God and are going to heaven. They trust in a name, in forms, in conformity to external rites, and have never known anything of the internal peace and purity which religion imparts. And in fact, have never had any true fellowship with that God who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. Religion is light, religion is peace, purity, joy. And though there are eases where for a time a true Christian may be left to darkness and have no spiritual joy and be in doubt about his salvation, yet still it is a great truth that unless we know by personal experience what it is to walk habitually in the light, to have the comforts of religion, and to experience in our own souls the influences which make the heart pure and which brings us into conformity to the God who is light, we can have no true religion. All else is but a name which will not avail us on the final day, end quote. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light... As he is the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. It is foolish to think, though so many do, that a walk in darkness will still have Christ's blood as a cleansing agent, that the blood of Christ will cover a walk in darkness. This is not true. For Christ's blood was shed for those repentant of their sin, not for those who desire a continued practice of sin. Any then who think that a walk in darkness will still have God's forgiveness is in great error, as men must walk in the light for the blood of Christ to continue to cleanse them. See, blood makes atonement for past sin. It does not allow for future freedom to sin. For there is nothing in that blood which covers for remaining in and continuing to walk outside the light of God's word. The sinner then who walks in darkness and does not strive and apply himself to walking in the light should not think that Christ's blood will cover the darkness in his life. Those who do walk in the light can expect first fellowship one with another as well as the blood of Jesus Christ, cleansing them from all sin. Hence, those who seek the light of God can expect that Jesus' atonement will be more than sufficient for their spiritual cleansing. Abiding and seeking to remain in the light 
providing also the promised hope that the sin, which is still part of our flesh, will not prohibit fellowship with God, either here on earth or with God in heaven. Barnes on 1 John 1, 7. The apostle is stating the substance of the message which he had received. 1 John 1, 5. The first or leading part of it was that God is light and in him is no darkness and that his religion requires that all his friends should resemble him by their walking in the light. Another and a material part of the same message was that provision was made in his religion for cleansing the soul from sin and making it like God. No system of religion intended for man could be adapted to his condition which did not contain this provision. And this did contain in it the most full and ample manner. Of course, however, it is meant that the blood that cleanses from all sin only on the condition on which its efficacy can be made available to man by repentance for the past and by a cordial reception of the Savior through faith, end quote. 1 John 1, 8 now. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Those who have not a knowledge of a broken and contrite spirit have deceived themselves to think that no sin lives in them. The more self-righteous a person is, also, the more he or she will deny the presence of sin. So strong can be some people's deception that they actually believe that there is no sin that lives in them. Yes, they may outwardly say they sin, doesn't everybody? Yet inwardly will believe themselves as completely pure and innocent before God. This was Job's belief presuming that just because he held a fear of God, that this eliminated any great sin within himself. Elihu's correction of Job reveals his error. Job 33.8 Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy words, saying, I am clean without transgression. I am innocent. Neither is there iniquity in me. Though some commentators may dismiss this verse as evidence of Job's inward thoughts, Job himself does not. Hence, though Job rejected the false claims of Elipaz, Zophar, and Bildad and refuted their false arguments openly with Elihu's divine reproof of his sin, Job remained silent. This is often the case when men are convicted of sin. Sinners once convicted of sin, finally then no longer defending themselves, are now ready to hear God's reproof. Job's true condition, and one which God would later reveal to him, was that he felt himself innocent, and that it was God's fault for his condition. As those who inwardly think themselves pure and absent iniquity will strive with God about the circumstances in their lives. Job chapter 40, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he, and this is in reference to Job, that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He, again Job, that reproveth God, let him answer it. See, Job had been in contention with God, even though he knew it not. This is often the case of sinners. Their spiritual blindness prohibiting them to see who they really are 
and who also has a quarrel with them. Job 40, verse 6 now. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me, Wilt thou, Job, also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me, that thou mayest be righteous? When God makes judgments, he expects men to accept them, not, therefore, to find reason why they may think them unjust. See, all those who claim themselves innocent of sin will condemn God in order to remain righteous in their own eyes. Ultimately choosing condemnation of God in place of an acknowledgement of their own sin. The mark of a haughty man, even if he is religious, is that he will think himself clean and without transgression. Proverbs 30.12 There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet is not washed from their filthiness. So also those who think themselves pure, clean, and without sin will struggle mightily when any sin is brought before them. Their inward thought, because of being deceived by sin, is that there is no sin in them. And surely not. That sin is the base of their fleshly nature. It is these people who inwardly think themselves sinless and deny sin towards God that 1 John 1.8 addresses. The result of denying sin is that the truth will not be in us. Thus, neither in the heart nor in the soul will God's truth live if there is a denial of sin. He who inwardly claims he does not sin ultimately will lose all connection to the truth. This, of course, will mean a loss of relationship with both God and Christ, the members of the body of Christ, as well as all the Holy Scriptures. Hence, for the truth of God to be in a man, there cannot be a denial of sin in his person. It should also be remembered that the apostle is speaking to those in the church and those who profess themselves as Christian, teaching us that where a great amount of denial of sin remains is in Christ's assembly. It is here in the church that John wants to make clear that where denial of sin is, the truth will not be. Self-deceivers unaware that when the truth no longer lives in them, that Christ has broken fellowship with them. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 now. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. It is not therefore the words we say, but the truth we hold that indicates true fellowship with God. The tongue also that was used on earth to deceive men as to having fellowship with God will be enabled to deceive Christ at his judgment. For where words can deceive men, they cannot deceive God. Men are guilty before God so that until this is actually believed and confessed as the truth, then no true fellowship with God can be begun. The sinner needing to see himself before fellowship with God can be enjoyed. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they 
no in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Until a man's heart sees himself as he really is, which is guilty before God, there can be no true restoration of fellowship with God. All men have proven themselves to be under sin. A denial of this experiential reality is the denial of the truth of the gospel itself. A wise man thus will realize that when the truth is no longer felt or held within himself, that connection with God has been broken and he is living, walking in darkness, and undoubtedly in sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 now. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For fellowship with God to be regained and also to continue, confession of sin is essential. But this confession must entail the heart of a man and not merely his mouth. It is from the heart that God expects true confession and belief to proceed. Confession also ultimately directed towards he whom we have sinned against. Hence, it is not simply that we acknowledge to ourselves that we have sinned, but we must repent and confess to God that we have sinned. Understanding that a man may acknowledge internally that he has sinned, but this is far short of approaching God and confessing it to the Lord. Because only when sin is openly confessed to God, and also we are willing to suffer shame before Him, can and will He cleanse us from our sin. Matthew Henry on 1 John 1, 9, God holds no heavenly fellowship or intercourse with unholy souls. Confession of sin is thus needed so that God can cleanse men from their sin. As all denial of sin by the stubborn and self-righteous man must result in a forfeiture of divine forgiveness. For he who will not confess his sin will not be forgiven for it. Barnes on 1 John 1, 9. Pardon of the scriptures always supposes that there is confession and there is no promise that it will be imparted unless a full acknowledgement has been made, end quote. The record of the prodigal son teaches us how first a man must come to himself regarding his sin against God, but then also return to God and be willing to confess it before joy and fellowship with God can again be recovered. In Luke chapter 15, verse 11 now, and this is the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, 
Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son had gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there rose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. What is seen in the parable of the prodigal son is a departure from the father, God, in search of individual independence. As all sin has at its core a desire to be independent from God, to live our lives as we will and not as the father wills. The desire for personal independence producing a walking away from God as those who desire to be independent from the Lord, to live their lives as they please, must leave him in order to do so. Matthew Henry on this section in uh, Luke 15, 11. Our first parents ruined themselves and all their race by a foolish ambition to be independent. And this is at the bottom of sinners persisting in their sin. We may all discern some feature of our own characters in that of the prodigal son. A sinful state is of departure and distance from God. A sinful state is a spending state. Willful sinners misemploy their thoughts and the powers of their souls, misspend their time and all their opportunities. A sinful state is a wanting state. Sinners want necessaries for their souls, they have neither food nor raiment for them, nor any provision for hereafter. A sinful state is a vile slavish state. The business of the devil's servants is to make provision for the flesh, to fill the lust thereof, and that is no better than feeding swine. A sinful state is a state of constant discontent. The wealth of the world and the pleasures of the senses will not even satisfy our bodies. But what are they to precious souls? A sinful state is a state which cannot look for relief from any creature. In vain do we cry to the world and to the flesh. They have that which will poison a soul, but have nothing to give which will feed and nourish it. 
A sinful state is a state of death. A sinner is dead in trespasses and sins. Destitute of spiritual life. A sinful state is a lost state. Souls that are separated from God, if His mercy prevent not, will soon be lost forever. The prodigal's wretched state only faintly shadows forth the awful ruin of man by sin. Yet how few are sensible of their own state and character, end quote. There is much to be taught in this parable, and we hope to one day teach it. But sufficient for now is the realization that the behavior of the prodigal son is seen to be much deeper and much more a dangerous sin than what most people think. The son, because of his personal lust, was gladly willing to leave the father in pursuit of it. This is always the case of the prodigals. As their main sin is their search for independence from God, to live a life of only pleasing themselves. Understanding also that there is no sin that's greater against God than the desire to be independent from Him. And it is this unholy appetite in men that leads them to pursue a life of worldly gratification. Any man also is a liar if he stubbornly insists that in his sin there is not also a desire to be independent from God. For all sin has as its nexus, leaving the Lord to pursue our own sensual desires and human independence. The self-willed man or woman, therefore, will always be one who is prone to leave God for their own pleasure in this world. It was only when the prodigal son realized his sinful state and what it had really produced in his life that he was ready to return and confess his sin to his father. Hence... With true confession, the repentant must seek again God's presence, which he first willingly chose to leave. Again, it was not enough for the son to simply come to himself about his sin, verse 17, unless from this realization he was willing to return to the father and face the shame that his sin undoubtedly produced. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Verse 18. The son's willingness to admit his guilt, ultimately producing for him forgiveness and restoration of his standing with the father, teaching us that when men and women depart from the Lord, their standing with God is threatened. For no sinner who will leave God in pursuit of sin should think that his standing in God's family will remain the same without repentance. As any continued walk in sin ultimately will produce, without repentance, a removal from the family of God. It also can be only God who is able to restore our standing with Himself. God must restore a man, as no man can do it for himself. So also, if it was not for God's goodness to cleanse us from our sin, we would forever remain living among the swine. Daniel 9.9 To the Lord our God belongeth mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. God's great mercy seen when men confess their sin, that he graciously pardons them for it. Remembering also, if God's grace was not greater than man's sin, then man's own wickedness would have a long time ago destroyed him, Genesis 6-5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He also who sins against God ultimately commits an even greater sin against himself. For all sin will carry with it, without repentance, divine judgment from the Lord. 1 John chapter 1, verse 10 now. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. God's word revealing that the denial of sin shall prohibit the truth of God from living in a man. Where sin is then, truth shall not be present. Likewise, whenever Christ's joy is lost and the word of God is not present and a blessing to us, then sin, whether known or not, has been committed, which, if it remains unaddressed, will lead us further and further away from God. So much so in truth, if sin is committed willingly, after we have received a knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Barnes on this verse. It is true and always will be true that if a sincere Christian should apostatize, he could never be converted again. See the notes on Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. The reasons are obvious. He would have tried the only plan of salvation and it would have failed. He would have embraced the Savior and there would not have been efficacy enough in his blood to keep him. And there would be no more powerful Savior and no more efficacious blood of the atonement. He would have renounced the Holy Spirit and would have shown that his influence were not effectual to keep him. And there would be no other agent of greater power to renew and save him after he had apostatized. For these reasons, it seems clear to me that this passage refers to true Christians and that the doctrine here taught is that if such as one should apostatize, he must look forward only to the terrors of judgment and to final condemnation, end quote. If God then, the Lord himself, cannot restore a sinner through the influences of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ, then they remain impossible to be saved. When therefore God's power cannot save, no other power can. Sin, therefore, should be respected, for if it is not, then not only can it prohibit a life of freedom and blessing on this earth, but will prohibit any hope of entering the eternal life, which Jesus Christ came to make known to man, the God of light, finding all darkness unacceptable to him.